Blog Talk Radio. General Quarters, Security Condition 3. GQ, Security 3, sir. General Quarters 3, Intruder Alert. GQ 3, Intruder Alert. Don't tell me you can't get good help anymore because I've got the finest doorman in the business there. Hi, good evening, and welcome once again here inside the Genie Bottle, Madam Perry Salon. I'm your host, cruise director, and groove mistress. Madam Perry, but you can call me Jennifer or Jan or JP, and I am happy to be with you again. First of all, let me say thank you so much to everyone who has been subscribing and downloading, whether you just subscribe on Blog Talk Radio, uh, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Podcast FM, Blueberry, wherever, whatever plot, whatever podcast platform. you use for the podcast you listen to. Thank you, and for downloading and sharing, because um, because of you doing that, I'm able to get uh, good sponsors, like I'm going to have in the middle of the show a brand new sponsor, and it helps me keep bringing great guests, like I've had recently and last night, and coming up soon and tonight, and I can bring you all the best. Thank you for the messages you send me about the shows. I really do appreciate it, and. Uh, so, yeah, keep on. By the way, last night we had Mitchell Levy, the AHA guy. That was a lot of fun. It got so energetic. Uh, last week, Chrissy Rass, drummer of Femme Halen in L.A. She's going to come back and bring the whole band. Uh, coming up next week, Monday, we have August McLaughlin. Now, you may have seen her TED Talks. You may know about her podcast called Girl Boner, which is also the name of her latest book, Girl Boner. And uh, she writes about women's health and sexuality. But, guys, you, you're welcome. You're welcome to this show. This is not going to be just a girls-only thing. So come in and meet her. Uh, if you're, you're probably already a fan of Girl Boner and August McLaughlin, but come on. And then on Tuesday, suspense author Brett Wright. Uh, Brett Wright, the first time he was here in Madame Perry Salon, he and his friend, lawyer and suspense writer, Rick Cornell, snuck some burritos in and left them in the cushions, but it's all clean now because, um, well, because I had it cleaned out, and uh, we just can't have that kind of stuff going on forever and ever. So if you bring any food, that's fine. Just bring enough to share. Now, I am so happy to have tonight's guest. You know, I think I was telling everybody that last week um, I went to um, a dinner that I've been going to. Well, this was my third year. Really excited about. Um, it's a group of companies like um, Audio Engineer Society and the um, Societies for Space and Satellite Professionals. Um, anything to do with broadcast, satellite, uh, communications, so forth. And I just enjoy the folks, enjoy being in their company. 
I am sure I don't understand what they do, what they talk about, but it's just invigorating and fun to be around them. And so you know I am thrilled to have tonight's guest. He's authored 13 books. Well, actually, by the time I read this, he's probably got about 20 more on space subjects. He's written extensively for NASA, JPL, Caltech, other publications, venues, uh, and venues. Um, he's also the creative senior editor for Ad Astra magazine. Uh, he's written for PopSizeSpace.com. And we're going to get into, I mean, this guy, I just called the expert of NASA uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory Space Biz, and I am just so psyched to have him here. So please welcome Rod Pyle. Rod, come on into Madame Perry Salon. Get a cushion. Sit down. Thank you. I'm bringing my coffee with me. I'm delighted. Good, good, good. Um, you heard my doorman at the beginning. He's here every show. He's great at watching for intruders, but he doesn't make coffee, and I don't press him. <laughs> Well, and you even picked the right trek to do. I was so pleased. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's he's 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 my opener every week, and um, yeah. So you know, and I hope it made you feel even more at home here. <laughs> it did. It did. Okay. Yeah, Thanks I've so been posting uh, a photo of you with uh, looking over your shoulder in a big in the big space the cockpit. Um. You know what photo that is? Uh, the the one in the shuttle? Yes, 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 the shuttle. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I still had dark hair then. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, listen, it, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I didn't have any direction from you which way you want to start, but I just know that I'm just so grateful that you accepted our invitation here and uh, didn't know where to get started. You know, I was. I guess I'll begin with where you. I want to know where you first began your interest in space because mine. And listen, when I say that I'm excited to have you here, is because. Um, well, first of all, let me explain. I'm a vampire, so you might. It might seem like I'm old to know a lot of things, but I'm just a vampire. I've been around for a while, but I remember. Um, I used to go rush home from school every day, or I walk home and watch TV or read the newspaper, and I always remember this quote from our president at the time and I remember him saying we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they're easy but because they're hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills and because that challenge is one we are willing to accept one we are willing to post uh, unwilling to postpone and one we intend to win and the others too, and you know who that is. Yeah, and it still gives you chills, doesn't it? Yes, yes. It's a so, truly great quote, and so it sounds like we're kind of in the same generation. Um, my awareness of this really started in the mid to late '60s when the Gemini program was going, and I became mm-hmm. aware of, of JFK's challenge, and of course. You know, all, all good Americans at that point thought we got to beat the Soviets because they're communists and all that. Oh, yes. And most of us didn't realize at the time that this was really more of a geopolitical maneuver than it was a scientific or even an engineering goal at the time. But it was a really exciting time to be alive. And by the end of the decade, 1969, July 20th, when Apollo 11 landed, that kicked off this amazing two years of lunar exploration, and at times 
There were rockets, the biggest rocket in history that ever flew successfully, the Saturn V, leaving for these adventures on the lunar surface, sometimes as frequently as every 10 weeks to two months. And you were barely over the last incredible mission by the time the next one came up, and we got to watch them on TV. Although you may have noticed, and my parents were kind enough to let me stay home to watch these, but by the time Apollo 14 rolled around and the news networks were pretty sure, oh, we don't have another Apollo 13 emergency, nobody's going to die, it's not the first landing, and so forth. Right in the middle of the moonwalk, they cut away to soap operas and I Love Lucy reruns, and I'm sitting at home thinking, the greatest technological achievement of the 20th century that doesn't involve war, and you're cutting me to General Hospital and the Young and the Restless? You've got to be joking. I couldn't believe it. But uh, that was an incredible time to be alive, and that's really what got me started on this, this path. <laughs> and so did did you, I'm sure at some point like that, you considered being an astronaut. I mean, surely you wanted to go into space yourself, Rod. <laughs> I did, and I, I tried to build little rocket ships in my backyard that was uh, very successful in giving me a place to sit and fantasize, but not very successful at getting off the ground. Um, however, as I got older, so I, I went off to UCLA in the mid-70s to become an astronomy major. And that lasted until I hit differential calculus, and I realized that mathematics and I had a serious parting of company. And I thought, you know, I I can struggle through this, but at best I might be an adequate scientist. Maybe I can be a better communicator because I love writing and I love filmmaking. So I decided to go off in the storytelling direction and got waylaid into TV commercials for about eight years and then made classroom educational films, which some of our kids suffered through about you know, don't don't follow the man over to the van if he offers to help you find your puppy and all that kind of stuff. And then I went off never, and worked on. Huh? I'm here to tell you, he never Sorry. does have any candy. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And he always had. To this day, you know, some of those films are still out there. You see these guys in flares and their, you know, their Bobby Darren haircuts and all that, and it's like. You guys really got to update these movies because if if anybody if any kid today saw a guy like that, they'd go running, screaming the other direction just because it's such a bad fashion statement, not because of the the van or the ice cream. But um, I, I spent so I spent a little more time. I really wanted to just get close to this, and I would kind of get involved with these little NASA projects, but they were always kind of secondary and peripheral. I went off and worked on Star Trek for three years on Deep Space Nine, which was really fun in the visual effects department. We didn't spend much time on set, but we got to play with the ships when they were still models and move them around, light them up, and draw in phaser fire and all that. And that was great fun, but I really wanted to tell stories about the incredible things that we had done in space, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time. And so I ended up working for the History Channel for a number of years. And that was great, except you had to tell the whole story of the Apollo program in 44 minutes or something of that nature. It was kind of like writing TV guide descriptions. And that's really what got me into books. So about 2003, 2004, I started writing long-form stuff, and I've been doing that ever since. And it's just so great because you get to kind of jump into the mud hole and just roll around and indulge yourself in these wonderful stories, and there's just nothing better. I love it. Yeah, you're right. You can't. You, it's like you just cannot grab just the end, just just the end of that string. You got to pull the whole thing and get the whole story. You can't just get a little, a little fortune cookie, or TV guy type thing, 
and and get the uh, scope. And that's why too, I'm glad that these days there are some movies that show um, things on the periphery of that, uh, like. Because I know I like to read a lot of biographies and memoirs and history, true stories. And then when I read one, I want to read about all the people in that group. Like if I read about the royal family, then I want to read. Then I've got the bio of Lord Mountbatten and then and then uh, everyone else around then and the people involved. Um, I, I can go back to the Boer War. and Because it's just, you know, you've got to know the whole story and, and, and the different aspects. Where you know now after the film Hidden Figures, you know we see another side of what was going on at the time, and I think that's very yeah. exciting. For and I'm hoping that um, that films like that will also interest and motivate uh, young people today to keep on going. Because for all that people mock about millennials, and I used to as well, I do. I'm starting yeah. to have a lot of faith in them and what they can do and what they will do. With this well, world. I, I agree, and, and as much as I love those those films you've talked about, and of course the books that some of them were made from, and, and the, uh, Hidden Figures was an amazing story. It was a little, you know, there was some fabrication in there from a historian standpoint, but it was done to good effect. You know, Kevin Costner was an amalgam of two or three people and so forth. But I think it really did tell a story that needed to be told. The other half of that, though, is telling the story that needs to be told now. So. Normally, I write stuff that's a more historical bent, but about three years ago, I was four years ago, I guess, I was pitching a, a book on the new space age because it was coming, it was coming, it was coming. And a lot of publishers were interested, but they were a little concerned. You know, space nonfiction is kind of a, a specialty niche, and they were concerned about the investment and so forth. So I went to the National Space Society, which I worked for, I worked with for a number of years, and said, Would you consider? helping to underwrite this book. And after a lot of maneuvering, they, they said, sure. So uh, that enabled me to write this book called Space 2.0, which is coming out in February, about the new space age, about what's going on now, both with NASA, private industry, international space agencies, Asia, Europe, Russia, and so forth. And the good news there, and one that I wish we saw a little more of in movies, though I don't know how you write the screenplay yet, is that now all those people that were peripheral back in the day, back during the space race, people that were that we see in movies like Hidden Figures and similar works, the doors are wide open. There's still a glass ceiling, and there probably is going to be for a while. But in this area, it is really merit-driven, and there are kids in university labs. There are people working in garages, on dinner tables at home, for small private startups that are building space technology. They're building rockets. They're building satellites. They're building sensing materials, all kinds of stuff that we wouldn't even think of necessarily being involved with space exploration. But there's so much technology and so much science being done that the need, this huge vacuum is being created, and very clever young people are, are just jumping into this as quickly as possible, even with hackathons. NASA and some of the other agencies do these big hackathons. They bring in programmers to design software because this is all software driven now. So the opportunities are vast and that's a message that I think is really important to get out there and I can't wait to see that in the widescreen. Exactly. I feel the same way. By the way, if you're listening live and I know a lot of people have told me that they're listening tonight, uh, 
you want to call in, you can call and talk to Rod Powell. The number is 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. Blog Talk Radio assures me it's a toll-free call in the continental U.S. Or for the people who listen, and, and I've got a lot of these folks that maybe can't call in because um, – Maybe you can't use a phone, you know, your baby's asleep or you're on your day job or something, <laughs> so you got to be a little more, you know, sly about it. You can always send me a message through Facebook at Jennifer Maudette Perry page or through the Madam Perry Salon page, either one, um, and I'll make sure your question gets through. And also, I want to say hello to uh, some friends that are listening, um, Frank Sawyer, AVL Technologies, and all your friends at the, um, uh, I don't know if it's a Planetary Society and uh, my friend Michael Greenwood of the Space Connection, and um, Joe Connolly from Intelsat, all my friends that are listening. All my, you know, uh, my husband has been in satellite communications for his whole career. So, just so you know, and I know you know the significance of this. Um, every day when I check my stats, you know, the, my my five highest. Um, uh, my, where my audience has come from, um, highest first is from from first on. Number one is always usually the U.S. Number two, the U.K. and Canada. Three and four are usually somewhere between um, Japan or uh, some you know France. And number five seems to be consistently either Amsterdam or Kazakhstan. Interesting. Yeah, I figured the Kazakhstan and Amsterdam. Amsterdam, when I go to the uh, the IBC meetings in Amsterdam and or the conventions, trade shows, and Kazakhstan, you know where they launch satellites from often. So, uh, just so you know that your people are out there, Rod Pyle. It's your people out there listening, <laughs> and some new well, people it, too. And I just want to say something about that audience. I mean, that kind of reflects what I've been finding when I when I do talks or if I track uh, the, the listens from my own podcast. I've been finding for years now, I did a couple of talks uh, directed at Asian audiences and uh, and also book, you know, watching your books get optioned for foreign publication is, of course, a good indicator. China's become huge. Japan has been huge for decades. I'd go to talk to Japanese citizens and they knew every Apollo astronaut and every target and every set of geological samples and so forth. You don't get that here in the U.S. very often, except for people like us. Uh, and they were incredibly enthusiastic, and this was the, the man, woman, and, and child off the street. And increasingly, uh, the National Space Society, which is the organization that publishes the magazine I edit, does a conference every year. And we've gone from having just a handful of young people in the last four or five years to up to 500 and the biggest concentrations come from Asia, mostly India, and interestingly, Eastern Europe, not, not Central and Northern Europe as much as Eastern Europe. It may be one of those things where a couple of folks got involved and they told a few more and it just spread that way. But for some reason, that concentration of countries there are really intensive interest, sufficient that they're spending a lot of money to come out to the U.S. Usually, these, these conferences are held all over the world, but most frequently in the U.S., and attend. And it's really great to see that that ocean of young, eager faces out there. And they are so hungry for this material and so hungry to know what NASA and other agencies are up to and to see the future. And I used to give – I still do give a lot of talks to young groups. There's a 
group called SED, Students for Exploration and Development of Space. I was giving a talk to a bunch of them a few years back, and I was talking about this coming new space age, how exciting it was going to be. Space 2.0 is almost here. And then I started talking about – somebody asked me about how I got interested, like you were discussing. And I was talking about the Apollo years, and it was a very small group, and a, a bunch of kids down front, two or three of them, started to, to cry. I stopped, and I said, was it something Seriously? I said? And they said, yeah. And they said, you have no idea how lucky you were to be alive then. And I oh. stopped, and I thought – I, I kind of lost my place. I thought, God, they're right. But the thing that's wonderful now is – We've arrived. We're here. This era is upon us. And I think it really was kicked. It's been coming for a long time. And, you know, because your husband's in the satellite business, I mean, that has been probably the most robust part of the commercialization of this for, for decades now. But with the launch of the Falcon Heavy, I think, as a public symbol and the brilliant, brilliant PR move, what is that, that mannequin in a car in orbit around the Earth? That, I think, was the real kickoff for, for, for the world, I think, to see that. That's the pivot point. And um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who has another rocket company, and all these guys are just moving ahead at Warp 9, and it, it couldn't be more exciting. And I'm so glad I made it this far to be able to see this happen. <laughs> yeah, I think you probably know Pat Duggins, and he's with uh, Birmingham um, National Public Radio, and he's won several awards. He's covered every mission from the beginning um there and uh it's funny that when i he was on the show earlier in the uh earlier in the year and it was so fun to hear him talk about you know yeah it's the same thing as you you know when you talk to young kids they really are just astounded you know there are so many kids that get it and i can imagine i would just love i can just imagine you you, you making me feel like i'm there with you and you talk about the kids crying saying what a great time to be alive, you know, that you got to live through and see these things. And that makes me feel, you know, even more hope. And um, I want to, too, also want to take a chance before before I have to go to a, uh, I'm going to have to go to a promo for my new sponsor in the middle of the show. But before that, I also want to make sure people know that you have a website um, with rodpilebooks.com. Yeah, rodpilebooks.com, right. Uh-huh books.com and I will be sharing all of your social media on all of my social media so if you're listening or somewhere or you're in or um if you're in the car like my people on the east coast if you're driving in from work and you're listening and you don't have to write it you can't write it down don't worry I'm going to be sharing this on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else so that you'll uh won't have to worry about it you know you've got several books and I was going to read the title oh and by the way when you were talking about things like you know kids now can make robots and all kind of stuff they've got you know back when i guess when you and i were both growing up you know even if we were interested pretty much all well i usually got a chemistry set for christmas every year but you know all i had was just just a, just a few ideas of what i read a chemistry set and a younger brother who people were used to him being gone a long time anyway so if i launched him out <laughs> if i managed to trick him into <laughs> it'd be a while before anybody missed him anyway because he was always taken off so, uh, but you know, we did what we could, right? Um, yeah, and and I remember going to the the library at my elementary school, and all they had up through sixth grade was the big golden book of rockets, and everything looked like a silver banana. It was all fashioned after the V two for World War two. There just wasn't anything there. So now there's so much information available. It's just wonderful. Like those, the, the, and they had their uniforms. It seemed to be like some kind of a modified cowboy outfit with a big uh, fishbowl right. on their head. 
I'm going to read some of his titles. Uh, Interplanetary Robots, Heroes of the Space Age, Apollo 11 at 50. Um, that's, uh, that's coming out next year, though, isn't it? So I'm reading some of your next year books in this year's, your new titles. Uh, Space 2.0, Mars Making Contact. And I've been putting out the, the image of that book a lot, too, because it's so gorgeous. Blueprint for a battle star. So anybody got a big basement, some scrap metal, and get his book, uh, <laughs> Blueprint for a battle star. <laughs> got a solder in iron. You got a little extra time. Uh, amazing Stories of the Space Age uh, from Prometheus Books in 2017. And if I want to read a couple of these two, a uh, couple of reviews, your book, Amazing Stories of the Space Age, uh, just a couple of clips from reviews. One of them was... Um, uh, <laughs> it's like you almost don't know where to start. It's like uh, Andrew Chaikin said, author of A Man on the Moon, said, whether you are a diehard space fanatic or a casual reader, you'll find this <laughs> book full of fascinating space stories you never knew existed. Rod Pyle is our space super sleuth. And uh, <laughs> Peter C. Orton, story editor of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, the NBC TV series says, I'm a huge fan of amazing stories, and these stories are so compelling I could not put the book down until I finished reading every one. And what's most mind-boggling is that all these stories are true. And uh, and it was one more. Susan Holden Martin from the Mars Society, Inc. said, long after you finish this book, you'll remember how much fun you had reading it. So, hey, those are, those, those are pretty good. Uh, I'm happy to get them, take... and I, I'm just starting to get in reviews for the new ones, and I'm happy to say most of them are good. <laughs> I was I was kind of, you know, grinding my teeth over the one from Booklist because you never know what you're going to get from them because they're honest, you know. <laughs> and, of course, if you've written the book, you don't know if it's any good or not, right? You've been through it 20 times. You have no idea. And, fortunately, they're very kind. That was an interplanetary robot. So, yeah, I got four titles coming out this year that have been in various stages of construction for about five years. And then uh, they're reprinting Mars Making Contact and a book from 2009 called Missions of the Moon. So I'm all over the place. I got six of them on the shelf this time. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things, uh, a couple of books I want to ask you about first, but I'm going to take a moment to uh, talk about a new sponsor. So if you want to run and get a drink of water or some tang or something. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry, that just came to me, tang. Just a minute. Why not, right? Okay, I'm sorry about that one. That was bad. Okay, see, so, listen, you know, Matt Perry Salon, I, you know, I love my, I have great guests, I have great listeners, and um, one thing I enjoy, all, all of us enjoy, is a good-looking, well-dressed man. You know, there is a new website, and it's called Mates in Style, and it's M-A-T-E-S in Style, S-T-Y-L-E. It's a gents' modern fashion store is how they describe it. Their focus is to showcase comfortable and fashionable designer-crafted menswear, gents' accessories, men's jewelry, watch, health and lifestyle essentials, and custom-tailored shirts, vests, and suits for men crafted by local and international artisans. Now, one thing they do, they say, you know, sometimes men have a little difficulty trying to figure out what to wear, what to do, how to get out there. Uh, I love shopping for my husband. I once had a, uh, a saleswoman in the men's department of a store saying, uh, honey, if you dress up your man like this, you buy the clothes, you dress him up like this, send him out looking good, he'll always come back to you. And so far he has. So I still remember that lady. But this would be a great way to look on the website, kind of get your style. And it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes I wonder 
if I go to certain shops trying to buy something uh, for my husband or a gift for my brother or my nephew, sometimes I feel like there's only two choices, and one is preppy, um, or like a golf guy, or thug life. And, you know, there's so many different <laughs> parts to even the one person has, you know, more than one style in your life, in your day gig, your weekend, your nighttime. Um, but there is no one style fits all. So Mason Style offers things like streetwear, you know, just your just your fashionable streetwear style, uh, whether you're the hip-hop street artist uh, or if you're the corporate powerhouse and you want your, por- cor- your power suit. Maybe you're a prepster, a jock, or the rock star moto man, adventurer, um, American throwback, whatever. But there are so many different types of styles for men. And as I said, you know, you know, sometimes haven't you ever got ready to go and say, well, i got places to go and people to be. Today I'm, you know, business owner, entrepreneur. Tonight I'm casual guy out having a good time looking to meet people. And then on the weekend maybe you got a band, just whatever. Mates in Style is ready for you. And they're having a big pre-launch right now. And I'll be sharing all this, this social media on that. But the uh, the is pre-launch dot matesinstyle.com so go to prelaunch.matesinstyle.com and on the prelaunch they want to spread the reach of this new website to as many people as possible so I'm telling you about it and I'll be sharing all the social media how to find this any specials and goodies they have and then you just go out there and just make yourself look fine alright speaking of launch let's get back to Rod Pyle Rod I was going to ask you something about a book first, but I wanted to, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and you pretty much um, mentioned this earlier, but I want to go back into it. When you at one time work, did work on Deep Space Nine, how much right. fun was that? Or was it like just was it like was it like getting paid to play? Honestly, all this. Has been like being paid for having a good time. The thing that was, I mean, it was a grueling schedule, and it was uh, in the uh, what would you call them? The, I guess the physical days of visual effects. So we were. It was the last gasp of working with little spaceships. So, and I say little, I mean the Enterprise one seven zero one was, I think, six and a half seven feet long. The Klingon ship was about three feet long. So they weren't tiny, but being able to work with those models. We call them miniatures. They get mad if you call them models at the time. Um, was just such a thrill because the attention to detail that the the artist that, that built them was so exquisite, and they were just beautiful. So you'd walk into the stage, and you know, if I came in late or something, the guy I worked for, a gentleman, a very talented guy named Gary Hustle, would have one of the ships mounted up on the motion control rig, and it'd be all lit and ready to go. And you'd start from 40 feet away and keep walking closer and closer and closer, and you'd swear from three feet away you're looking at the real thing. There's little people in there somewhere, you know, which is the whole idea, of course. So that was fantastic. Um, A few years later, about seven years later, uh, I had a company, and we did some visual effects work, and we started on the first uh, pre-visualization component of the Battlestar Galactica reboot, and at that point, everything had moved into computer-generated effects. So it was an interesting look at the other side of that. It was still really engaging, but it's not as much fun as playing with the, the physical ships, you know. But um, that was also a wonderful show. Same guy, Gary Hustle, and the work he did on that was just extraordinary. I was a very small part of that. But 
yeah, it, every every bit of that, other than the really really long hours, was great. And even the long hours. I mean, as an author, you get a commission for a book, and you know you just slog through the trenches until you're done, no matter what. And usually, the, the wages are not not high, not what they were, you know, 20 years ago when book advances were huge. On the other hand, when you're working on TV, you go into time and a half and double time pretty quick. So that was also very rewarding. So it was able to pay for a lot of bad habits like writing. Um, so, yeah, I could just picture you there helping them um, work the phasers, you know, in case there might be some recoil or whatever. <laughs> we Occasionally we used to go on set and uh, I'd, I'd watch these guys supervise the extras because you always had – you know, the the people that you only saw for that episode who ended up getting killed by a Klingon or a Cardassian or something. And you'd have to tell them, okay, phasers don't have recoil. So you got to hold it there long enough to, for us to draw the little, the little light beam out the end of it. Cause that's something you got to do frame by frame. Okay. So just hold it there. But you know, so many of them were used to working in Westerns or something that they'd, they'd fire and they'd recoil their hand and go, no, no. And there was one guy who actually, delightful man but he would say bang every time he pulled the trigger and have to say no no phases don't go bang they're a little they're an energy beam they make a little whirly gig sound so just just let it do its thing and just hold it there couldn't do it but took an hour to get him to do it right it doesn't need any encouragement it it can do it by itself that's right (laughs) just a prop you know we'll take care of everything else all right can you tell me how and don't get me wrong, I'm not questioning your cool factor. I think that's certainly established. But uh, how were you able to take the Enterprise, and I guess this was one of the models, I don't know, um, you, I see a picture of it in the Paramount warehouse. You took it back to Paramount to shoot a book cover. You had the, yeah. many, it was one of the pictures, but it doesn't look miniature to me in the picture. Yeah, it was, uh, it was. It was either a book cover or calendar. I think it was a book cover. And so it, it had been – they weren't shooting a movie at that point, so they had stuck it in storage out in lovely Pacoima, California, which is a place you don't want your car to break down. And so we went out to this huge warehouse, and the crates weren't marked well, so we, we were unbolting any large crate we could find. Uh, one of them had a big – like a rubber tentacle in it. Another one had a bunch of Klingon heads in it. I mean, they had all this stuff stored out there. Finally found the Enterprise, that beautiful, huge model you're looking at. Got it back to uh, the stage where we were shooting and realized that the deflector dish was missing, that that blue circle at the front. Uh Uh-huh. And we thought, oh, my God, whoever shot it last time, either somebody ran off with it or they just forgot to put it back in the crate. And there was no time to go back out to the storage area to find it. So we scrambled around in the, in the scrap boxes that were all over the place. And it turned out there was a half-sized one that somebody had made for some other shot. I have no idea what they were doing with it. So we stuck it about 10 feet in front of the model and lined it up perfectly so you couldn't tell the difference. So in the in the final photo, it looked perfect, but the deflector dish was actually sitting a far distance from the ship, and it was all a trick of perspective. But working with that thing was just extraordinary, and that model – that miniature was the one that was made for the first Star Trek movie, which Robert Wise directed, which was kind of long and ponderous to a lot of people, but it was the kickoff for lots and lots of movies that made tons of money. I mean, 
The left half mm-hmm. of the Paramount lot was paid for by Cheers, and the right half was paid for by all the Star Trek spin-offs. And that model was, I think at the time, 1977-ish, cost $180,000 to construct. So you're looking at real craftsmanship there. And again, you got closer and closer and closer to it. And they'd even taken the trouble when they were painting it. If you remember the movie at all, when the Enterprise is going past the camera, you see these little squares that looks like it's been put together out of little tiny maybe three foot by three foot squares of, you know, unobtainium or whatever they built the enterprise out of neutronium or something. They had painted little like half inch squares all the way down the sides of the ship and all the way down the hall. And they would take a little mask and spray it left to right. And then the next one would be top to bottom, left to right, top to bottom. So as it rolled by the camera, these things would pop. They go pop, 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 pop as they went by. So the attention to detail was just, unbelievable and i i lust for another project with that attention to detail because these days we're all moving so fast it's really hard to take your time to do that kind of work oh man so wow yeah and and did you at any i I guess you didn't probably didn't feel nervous at all with something like that in your possession did you no i just wanted to take it home (laughs) sure well you know, when you're transporting the thing, you're always afraid the car will break down and somebody's going to come steal your spaceship. But other than that, you know, you just try to be very careful not to break it. They're built really strong. I mean, these things are made out of thick putty that, that hardens up, and it's almost like like rock. It's so hard. But, yeah, if you're careless with it, things can snap off and break. And they did sometimes, not on that not on that miniature, but on others. But, you know, See? you glue it back together and you, you fix it in post, right? Right, right, sure. I'm just, you know, um, I'm just picturing a story, a whole different set of stories where, where you know, you you, you meet a girl somewhere and she wants you to go. You go, baby, I can't go. I got a, le- I got a spaceship. I got, I got to take care of my spaceship. It's going, okay. This guy's a loser. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, right. he, well, he's got a spaceship now, it, back there. <laughs> exactly. And nowadays, you know, somebody says, "What do you do?" And you go, "Well, I write space books." And they kind of look at you like, "Oh, you're one of them." So wait a minute. <laughs> this is really cool stuff. What are you talking about? So, yeah, they're not exactly chick magnets, you know. Don't take any crap off those people. Hey, so um, what do you think the two – and by the way, this is a time I also want to say um, I am going to be – if I've got about a few more minutes with uh, Rod Pyle as long as he'll bear with me and my my bad humor. Um, If you want to call in 646-916-9922 to make a comment or a question – and or if you want to ask about his books, and remember, I've got all the titles I can get clammed into and, and tagged on here. But um, you do make a lot of public appearances. I think you're going to be in 2019 in March. You're going to be in Des Moines at the DMACC. Yeah, whatever that is. is. Really, well, it, it's the Des Moines Area Community College, and when you think of community colleges, you usually think of small functions with a few dozen people. This uh, a gentleman named Tony Poston, who uh, is the uh, provost there, has put together this. This is the tenth year he's done this. It's called the Create Innovation Week Conference or CI Week, and it's this amazing. It's the one of the best organized conferences I've ever been to, other than of course the ISDCs, which I helped put together. Um, and he gets these. Last year he had uh, Jonathan Frakes from Star Trek: The Next Generation and. 
Kenny or not a famous uh, rock and roll drummer, but I don't know a lot about rock and roll, so I, I can't remember what band he was with. But he gets these these sensational people together, and the event is free. So people come from all over Des Moines. They come from all over the state. They come from neighboring states. He gets about uh, between 1,000 and 2,000 attendees for these things. And Magnificent. it's just a wonderful opportunity to share with a really broad audience of mostly incredibly young, energized people. I like it. That that does sound very energizing and exciting. That's great. And in uh, May, you'll be at the uh, International Space Development Conference in Arlington? Yep, I'll be doing talks there and a couple of panels. Uh, we're going to do a panel on Space 2.0, not on my book, but on the subject of the new space age. We'll have a number of uh, real headliner speakers there. And the ISDCs are the uh, National Space Society's way of, of kind of reaching out to the general public. So a lot of people that come are members of the organization, but a lot of people that come aren't members of the organization, and they just want to get a sense of what it's all about. And I love the topics, and I love the talks, but also part of it is just gathering with a bunch of people that don't mind if you sit down and talk about space for the next two hours because that's their passion too. So you can really geek out for days at a time at these things, and they're great fun. And then in um, March, I'm going to be at the Tucson Festival of Books. That'll be the first time I've done that event. And I guess it's Tucson Festival of Books. Oh, yeah. Tucson, Arizona. And yeah. I had no idea, but that particular Festival of Books is, I think, the third largest in the country. And I thought, wow, in Tucson, right? So that is exciting. And I'll be doing a couple of talks there. So it's it's going to be a busy year. And, of course, this coming year is the Apollo 11 50th anniversary. So anybody that's got anything to do with that is all over the place. And, you know, those oh, astronauts yeah. are getting up there in years. So they can only do so many events in one month before they've got to sit down and take a, a breather. So it's going to be a busy year. Yeah. Tucson's a happen place. I was there uh, back in March for the Wild Wild West Con. It's a steampunk convention. Oh, no kidding. I did a present. They had invited me to come out and do a presentation on podcasting and stuff because I've had a lot of steampunk folks on, on the show. And uh, it was in the, in the old town Tucson that used to be sets for TV and movies, and that's where now it's more of a tourist attraction. So that's where they have the Wild Wild West Con. And uh, yeah, being, I'm going back next year. Tucson, Tucson's a pretty cool place. Um, a lot going on there. You know, also to get back to, and don't forget, folks, the, the, with book titles like Interplanetary Robots, Heroes of the Space Age, Space 2.0, Mars, Making Contact, Blueprint for Battlestar, Amazing Stories of the Space Age, Space Age, Apollo 11 at 50, um, you, and more. It, it, this man is a writing machine. Um, well, I've got a few more minutes with you. I want to ask you some things about what's going on. Now, I was somewhere a few hours ago, and as I was leaving, I saw something flash on a television screen that uh, <laughs> I can't believe. Steph Curry is saying that we did not go to the moon, Stephen Curry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got a, I've got a dear friend who's, uh, who's, whose granddaughter is nine years old, big into science. And her stepfather is a flat earther. And she has no problem saying to him, are you crazy? <laughs> not flat. You know, what's wrong with you? So, uh, but what do you, when you consider things today, like there's the uh, private, people in the private sector that have the money and the desire who can, who can put machines out in space, like uh, Elon Musk, 
Jeff Bezos. Now, to me, the, I don't know, I'm certainly not well uh, educated on all this, but from what little I see as a layperson, it seems like Musk is more the big flashier kind of thing, whereas Bezos seems to be more of a, um, it kind of keeps it cool. You know, he doesn't make a big flash about what he's doing. He's quieter, more serious. What do you think we can look forward to in the future between the private folks like that as well as or compared to or even working with NASA? Well, um, excuse me. <coughs> um, it, it's interesting. You know, it is easy to, to characterize those companies by the, the, the people that drive them. I'd say it, it, and a lot of people realize that Bezos's company, Blue Origin, this rocket company, has actually been around longer than SpaceX by two years, but they both started around 2000. Musk moved very quickly and aggressively once he got his first rocket to fly successfully in 2008. He took those that small rocket engine and started clustering them into groups of, of nine and, and, and then 27 for the Falcon Heavy flight last year, earlier this year. Um, and that was the way he went after it because he wanted to capture NASA contracts and bring NASA money into his operation to help underwrite what he was doing. So he paid for most of the development early on himself and then partnered with NASA on these contracts to deliver cargo to the space station and hopefully this year, next astronauts. Uh, actually, it'll be next year, not, not this year. Um, and, and that was his MO. Bezos, as you said, has operated a little more in stealth mode. Uh, his way of going after things is kind of twofold. On the one hand, he's building a tourist rocket, the New Shepard, which is a small reusable rocket that's designed almost exclusively for taking tourists on suborbital hops, like the early Mercury missions, and also carrying uh, scientific experiments and so forth for university clients and NASA. On the other hand, he's building very large rockets and rocket engines and uh, so large and so successful so far that he's actually going to be selling them to the third competitor, which is called the United Launch Alliance, which is a very old aerospace company. It's Boeing and Lockheed partnered up uh, to power their rockets. So he's taken a very different course. It's been slower, more of a gradual progression. One of the main differences is that Musk has taken a substantial amount of, of money from NASA, hundreds of millions, Whereas uh, Bezos is funding this almost entirely himself. I think he's gotten $36 million or something for small contracts. But he's cashiering a billion dollars of Amazon stock every year to, to fund this company. And that shows an incredible commitment. The other divergence between these two guys is their expressed goals. Musk has talked a lot about getting to Mars. Uh, getting human civilization rooted on Mars so we have sort of a backup drive, if you will, if something happens on Earth and so forth. Now he's pivoting to the moon, which is smart because that's where NASA is going. But a lot of it is about transporting large quantities of people off Earth and to other worlds. Bezos has a slightly different approach, which is about colonizing space, but with the primary idea, as he expresses it, of allowing Earth to heal and recover and become this pristine planet that it once was. So you're talking about moving heavy industry off of Earth, so it's a little more purpose-driven in that way. Um, let's take all the polluting industries and move them off Earth. Let's use solar power from the sun to power uh, to provide electrical power on Earth so that we don't continue burning fossil fuels and so forth. So they're both brilliant guys uh, doing what they do best. Bezos is, is not as grounded in engineering as Musk is. So he's got a slightly different approach there. He's got a lot of companies to run too. So those are both 
kind of the sterling examples, if you will, of what can be done in the private sector by billionaires. And I'm, I'm glad we have them because if you talk to – I interviewed uh, somebody from the European Space Agency a couple of years ago for the Space 2.0 book, and I said, do you see this happening in Europe? And she was the head of the German Space Agency at the time. She said, no, we don't have billionaires or the kind of tax codes that enable that sort of thing, and we're going to have to find a different path into this area. Uh, India is still kind of a question mark. There's a lot of government money going into space development, but how soon the private sector will come up in a way that it has in the U.S. is the question. China, we're starting to see both. There's a ton of investment by the government in space technology, including human space flight, uh, with a lot more coming. And when they plan, they plan 10, 15, 20 years out. None of this shifting administrations every four years business there. So they're able to have this very steady, paced, gradual program, which is what they're doing now. And I suspect they'll have humans on the moon by the mid to late 2020s because that's the course they're following. And there are private companies in China that are starting up flying rockets that look kind of alarmingly like the Falcon 9, actually. They look a lot like SpaceX's rockets that will be reusable. They just are a lot smaller. It will be reusable and uh, will provide competition in the, in the rocket launch market. So there's a lot happening internationally, both privately and more on the government side. And then, as you said, in the U.S., of course, we've got this incredible progress from these companies and many, many smaller ones. There are other small companies building smaller rockets that won't launch people, but they launch small satellites. And nowadays, because of the progress in electronics and miniaturization, you can build what they call a CubeSat, which is about the size of a Kleenex box, that'll do what something three feet by five feet used to do back in you know the, the 80s or 90s. So with this miniaturization, these smaller rockets that look like all they could do is launch toys are actually going to be launching uh, equipment that'll be doing incredible scientific research and commerce. And you can even send these little tiny CubeSats out to other planets. They just sent two of them along to Mars with the Mars InSight lander as an experiment, and it was very successful. So soon we'll be doing exploration with those little things as well. Wow. By the way, I got a message from uh, from Scott, who is in Georgia, and also from um, Mimi and Vinny in Asheville, who say they are enjoying the show very much and they can't wait to grab the books. Thank you so much, guys, for listening and for messaging in to us. Uh, do you see any – or? I don't know. Now, if you know something, maybe you can't talk about it. But, um, yeah. hey, I'm working background on Stranger Things. I'm no stranger to NDAs right now, okay? So I respect that. Right. But I haven't signed any, so go for it. <laughs> Do you see uh, any possible or useful uh, some kind of partnerships between uh, private uh, you know, private as well as and pop. I mean, between NASA and some of the and maybe Bezos or someone else, or do you think those two always will stay separate? No, I think that, I mean that's happening now. You know, Musk has uh, a, a variety of contracts with with NASA uh, to resupply the space station with cargo, and then soon, as I said, to fly astronauts up there. Uh, Bezos is, is actually, uh, I think they call it coopetition. He's selling rocket engines to his immediate competitor, which is interesting. That's kind of new in aerospace. And um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that because at a certain point, I mean, this is an expensive hobby for these guys. They may be multi-billionaires, but at a certain point, you want to start making a profit and bringing outside revenue. So I think they'll be uh, contracted with government. I think sometimes they'll be contracting with each other. Uh, 
And I think if we can get the regulations worked out to do so, increasingly they'll be contracting with foreign governments and vice versa. So I just heard the other day I was at a dinner with some JPL people, and I was talking about how uh, the Indians sent the Indian government sent a an orbiter to Mars a few years ago called the Mars Orbiter Mission, MOM or Mondalian, depending on which name you use. And it was the first non-U.S. or European Mars probe that actually got there successfully and, and worked properly. The Russians have been trying for years, but so far haven't had a complete success. So that was a big deal. Bigger than that, however, is when you're looking at a Mars mission, say that Jet Propulsion Laboratory puts together where I work sometimes here in Los Angeles, you know, you're looking at 200, 300, 500, 700 million dollars. They're not mm. expensive by government standards, but they're not cheap. The Indian Mars orbiter supposedly costs somewhere between 40 and 50 million dollars because the labor is much less expensive. It was, I'm told by my JPL contact, built 80% by women engineers and technicians, which is interesting. It's not something you see here yet. And said, so said, now. Uh, could you say that one more time? 80% women built that thing wow. and helped fly it. Yeah, that's progress, right? It was yeah. probably also an economic decision because there is an income disparity there, like there are in a lot of places. But it's, it's, it's a, a brave new world one way or the other. So what NASA said is, hey, you know, let's start outsourcing some of the fabrication of these things if we can do them as effectively and successfully with partners. And that's exactly what they're doing. So I think increasingly, as I said, if we can get the regulations worked out, because there's a, 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 a lot of regulation in the, in the U.S. government about sharing technology with foreign countries, concerns about defense and security and so forth. But as those get hammered out, I think increasingly we'll see co uh, cooperation with India and eventually China. It's kind of inevitable. It's a big problem right now because of all the the uh, concerns about intellectual property and so forth. But eventually that's got to get hammered out, and we're going to start seeing cooperation. Because when you've got a goal like Mars, which we've been we've been talking about flying astronauts to Mars since the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s, seriously looking at it since the mid-60s, and they were trying to figure out what to do with the Apollo program instead of shutting it down, which is what happened. And it just makes sense to do it internationally and with these private partners, because if you look at what Musk has done, for instance, there was an internal NASA study done about the development of the, I think it was the Falcon 9 and the Dragon capsule, or it may have just been the Dragon capsule. The development of that was between half and a tenth of what it would have cost to do it in government. You just can't wow. get around those numbers. That's a big deal. So increasingly, that's what we're going to see, I think. And that what NASA is saying they're going to do now, when this is since Trump took office, they reactivated a group called the National Space Council within government that convenes and advises NASA. They're really encouraging government to streamline regulation and get money flowing into the private sector to let them do what they do best, which is reliable, inexpensive access to orbit, inexpensive being a relative term, but cheaper than the shuttle was, for instance, and then let NASA really work on the high technology and pushing the barrier out to the moon and beyond. So that's what I think we're going to see more and more of. You know, uh, yeah. Well, Elon Musk, you know, his mother, who I believe is 69 years old, is a high fashion model right now. She's right. also uh, has a cover girl contract. Uh, I wonder if he's thinking that's going to be his backup plan for, for money if he spends it all. I don't know. Just um, 
I bet mom's going to kind of keep that tucked away, like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think he's got to worry for a while, you know. What's that? I don't think he's going to have to worry for a while. I mean, he's got, unless Tesla <laughs> does a big belly flop, he's got revenue from there. He's got the Gigafactory happening and, of course, SpaceX. And SpaceX, you know, it's privately held, so we don't really know the numbers. But they're making a ton of revenue, and I think as this moves ahead, we continue to see their rockets get more and more reliable. We only took a handful of tries for him to be able to get these things to fly back and land, which they do autonomously, by the way. There's nobody joysticking. Those rockets go up, deliver the payload, and the lower stage comes down and lands itself, all by itself. Uh, it's a robot in the truest form. I mean, that's just fascinating. When I first when I first read that, yeah, just God. Um, what does anybody wonder about with different with different countries trying to get their own program and doing some testing and maybe we don't know what everybody's doing, you know we don't know what North Korea is doing maybe or India. Does anybody wonder about some kind of uh, space debris just floating out there that could? What's going to happen? Is there anything? Um, you know, are we also looking to technology to divert some kind of disaster from yeah. uh, space? Absolutely. It's a huge problem. There are tons and tons, millions of tons of debris floating around various sizes. The Air Force tracks everything they can from basically the size of a softball up. And that's tough to do because there's tens of thousands of targets, some of them quite large. Everything from, uh, you know, dropped components off of the space station or from the shuttle era that got out of an astronaut's grip up to spent rocket boosters and dead satellites. You have to track all those things. In fact, from time to time, they have to fire up the boosters on the Soyuz and move the space station right or left or up or down to make sure it's not in the path of one of these things. And even something as small as there was a, a shuttle, I forget which mission it was, it was about uh, five, eight years ago, a piece of white paint the size of a dime, a paint flake, hit one of the windows and, and badly damaged the front layer. There were four or five layers thick. But you could have had a blowout if it had hit the hull. You could have had a real problem. And that's when they started flying the shuttle backwards so it would be protected by the engine in case that happened. So there's so much energy in these little bits of debris that it's a real problem. So there's a huge intellectual industry, if not yet one of investment, trying to figure out how to mitigate this. And one of the things that come out of that discussion, which is a ways off, it's going to take time. Because one thing is you have to figure out how to gather the stuff when it's flying in different directions at these incredibly high rates of speed with all this energy. But there's various approaches, you know, nets and electromagnetism and so forth. But one way or the other, if you can gather this stuff together, what you basically have up there in a lot of cases is a bunch of free metal floating around. So instead of launching big, heavy objects like habitats or rocket parts or whatever it is you want to have up in space or on the moon, if you can gather this metal together and smelt it and create something out of it, we already spent all the money and the chemicals to put it up there. All we got to do is make it into something new. And that's where 3D printing becomes very interesting. So if you can smelt that stuff down, you've got feedstock to make another 10 space stations. I love it. I love it. Hey, Rod Pyle, I know I've kept you too long. I've got to let you go. I am just so thrilled that you've been so generous with your time tonight uh, with me to be here in Madame Perry's salon. I wish you all the success. Everybody's going to go out and get the books. I know I know. Mimi's going to be, she says, okay, you've just added to my to-be-read pile again with, <laughs> with another 
so thank you. And uh, I know she's not the only one, uh, but thank you so much. Please come back sometime. Anytime you're ready, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a delight. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you. And also, folks, don't forget uh, – uh, <laughs> com to go shopping and I'm going to have some more information on that I'll be sharing more social media info on Rod Piles and I think that tonight Rod, I don't know if you know many of the uh, musicians there's a duo called Frenchie and the Punk but the Punk is Scott Helen and this is his song Never End the Rocket Century and I think that's the perfect <laughs> Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.